like to ask you if you would now stand together as we read from God's word. This morning, Pastor Wayne will be preaching from Colossians chapter 2, focusing in on verses 1 through 7, which are projected up on the screen. It reads this way. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk with him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we um, prepare to hear your word proclaimed this morning, we ask that you use Pastor Wayne in a mighty way so that these words, this passage will become more alive and real in each of our lives. We ask you to open our hearts, our ears, our eyes, and our minds so that we may receive your word this morning. For these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to reiterate what Ron just said about thanking Scott and our worship team for filling in for Kevin this morning. Beautiful, beautiful job. Uh, Scott Smith uh, and Debbie have come to us from church in California where they have uh, led worship for a long time and they've been a great blessing to us and we're very, very thankful for them. You know, when George Whitfield was preaching in Edinburgh, people would get up at five in the morning to go hear him. And one young fellow was on his way to the church one day, and he saw David Hume walking towards the church. And it shocked him, you know, because, I mean, Hume was a well-known skeptic and atheist. And so he said to him, I, I didn't think you believed in the gospel. And Hume said, I don't, but he does. Speaking of Whitfield, his passion for the gospel. During that time, here in the States, Ben Franklin, a friend of Whitfield, who published many of Whitfield's sermons, was also impressed with his passion for the gospel and collaborated with him on organizing a new school that would later be known as what? Whitfield and Franklin went together to start which school? University of Pennsylvania. But while Franklin had an appreciation for Christ and he had a fascination with the gospel, as far as we know, based on his lifestyle, he never surrendered to the Lord's means of redemption. He believed in God. He admired Christ. He enjoyed listening to one of the greatest preachers in history, but he insisted on embracing his own ideas of religion. Even encouraging one of his friends when he was laying on his deathbed, he says, trust the Lord, he will be just with you. Would that encourage you to know that a holy God was going to be just with you at your death? Can you hear the gospel over and over and over and reject it? I mean, Franklin did. Can you? You know, one of the concerns that Paul has for the people here at Colossae is he loves them. His love for Christ is the basis for his love for them 
Even though he's never been there. He's never been to that church face to face. He's never seen them face to face. But he has heard through Epaphroditus that, that, through Epaphras, that, he, that this church is stable and it's steadfast. This is not a ch church that is shifting from the hope of the gospel according to chapter 1 verse 23. But they are under attack. They're under attack by those who seek to undermine the truth of the Lord. People are coming there and telling them that they have a higher knowledge than what they have been taught by the gospel. And Paul knows that there are men like Demas who can come to the church and then forsake you. Demas did. He was involved in the church and then he forsook Paul. He abandoned ministry. He left town. Why? He loved this present world. Here's a guy who was associated with the church. He identified with Christ, but he was never, as Whitfield would say, born again. Now, Paul knows there are some in every fellowship where the church meets to worship. There are some like that. So he's concerned for them. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. This word struggle, uh, agona is again the word from which we get agonize. Now why agonize over people that he'd never seen? Why is that, Paul? Why? Well, Paul's a Jew. <laughs> As a Jew, Paul hated Gentiles, called them dogs. Hated the church. Hated the gospel. And then his heart of stone was changed by Christ. And as a result, he's now concerned for Jew and Gentile. Once he's born again, I mean, there's no evidence of apathy in his life. There's no indifference in him. Like Whitfield, even those who didn't agree with him respected his passion for truth, respected his love for the people. I saw a, a video this week of demonstrators in Seattle. Did you see that? They're angry over a recent Supreme Court decision that recognizes the value of life within the womb. They directed their rage at Christianity. Why is that? Why? Because God's word is the basis for the sanctity of human life. So I'm watching this video and they're kicking a Bible like it's a soccer ball. Until finally, they pick up its torn pages and throw it into a portable toilet. And everybody rejoices. Now, while that should sadden us, it should not surprise us. I mean, that's the nature of the world in which we live. But let me ask you this. How do you feel about those people who did that? I mean, it's angering to have God's word treated with contempt. But would we not agree with them? Would we not agree with what they did had it not been for the grace of God in our lives? Paul says, I struggle for you. I do. And I struggle for those in Lycus Valley. Why? Because there's this hatred for truth that is spreading through the birth of Gnosticism. Like a parent that sends their kid to college knowing they're going to come under attack for who they are and what they believe. Paul is concerned for these people. He's been commissioned by Christ, a chosen instrument, to bring the gospel to Jew and Gentile. Acts 9. So he struggles, he struggles in his compassion for them. 
You know, religious people often have a disdain for those who don't know Christ. But Christians, Christians have the same compassion for that Christ had for us while we were yet sinners, right? I've shared with you before that when one of my daughters was at UK, all three of them went through there, but one had a professor who just ranted and raved the first day of class about his disdain for Christianity. And she said, we started with, uh, with a classroom full, I mean, two or 300 people, and, and the next week there were 11 in class, 11. And that's what he wanted. He wanted to get the class down to 11. And she said, I don't, I don't think that he will pass me if I don't go along with his teaching. And yet I have to have this class to get my degree. That's why I'm not concerned with, with what he does. I'm concerned with what you do. I'm not concerned with him. I'm concerned with you. With you. You be the best student that you can be without compromising who you are in Christ. And let me tell you, if he fails you, I paid for that F. I'll frame it. And we'll hang it in the family room as a testimony to your faith and to your faithfulness. And because I had my girls to live at home while they were going to school there, I wanted to know what they were hearing in class. I wanted to know how they were responding. So I read, I proofed her papers. I read them. And yes, she did not take the position that he did, but she defended her own position. And I saw the comments that he wrote at the end of her papers. But following the final exam, he walked her to the car and he said, you know, lots of kids go through here. Lots of kids go there claiming to be Christian, but they will not defend their faith. And she ended up getting an A in that class, but the A was not the issue. That was not the issue. I was pleased to struggle with her through that experience because she was the issue. Her heart, her faith, her faithfulness to the Lord. That was the issue. That's what Paul is concerned with with these people. He's stuck in prison. He's a continent away. And so he prays and he writes and he struggles knowing the cultural pressures that are coming upon them. And what is he concerned about? Well, he tells them the stability of their convictions. Verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knitted together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. By the way, a heart knitted together in love is the only kind of heart that you can teach. The wisdom Paul prays they have, I'm telling you, it cannot be imparted to an immoral heart. The beginning of wisdom is what? It's fear of the Lord. You can't teach wisdom to a fool who denies there is a God or who has no respect for the God who is there. Paul prays their hearts are joined together to receive all the riches of full assurance of understanding. Synesis means precise moral discretion. Synesis. The stability of their faith. The riches of full assurance comes from a precise understanding of Christ. If you are off on the divinity of Christ, if you are off on the purpose for his death and the reality of his resurrection, 
you're going to always lack assurance. You'll be unstable in your faith. I didn't want my daughter compromising with this guy. Paul doesn't want this church compromising with the Gnosticism that is, is, is coming to fruition there in that culture. And it doesn't matter how long you've gone to church. It doesn't matter whether you have a seminary degree. If you're wrong about Christ, you're going to be wrong about life. You're going to be wrong about man and where man comes from and why he's here and where he's going. What you're going to end up doing is you're going to work your entire life climbing the ladder of success only to find at the end of your life your ladder is leaning against the wrong building. To be stable in your convictions, you need hearts knitted together in love that embrace the riches of full assurance that's rooted in a correct understanding of who Christ is. Why? Because we can't live a meaningful life till we know the truth about the one who has given us life and has redeemed us for life and has given our life purpose. So verse 3, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When you don't know the truth, what's the best you can do? When you don't know the truth, what is the best thing you can do? Speculate. Speculate. So if you don't know the truth, you're going to have to speculate about why you're here. Why I evolved? Oh, you did. From what? Where did that come from? How did you evolve? Why did you evolve? Does life exist beyond the grave for you who evolved? I mean, the best you can hope for is that there is no accountability at the end. That's the best you can hope for, that there's no justice. You got to hope that you just cease to exist. You came into being for no reason, and you go out of being for no reason. All of the philosophers of life, we see this with Socrates, with Plato, all the way up through Immanuel Kant and Frederick Schellemacher, all of those guys. All of those guys, they speculated about life. You know what was the best they could do? Was to pass on to the next generation of philosophers speculation that led them to neo-paganism, means new paganism, polytheism, pantheism, mysticism. And the reason is, is because the knowledge of God's mystery is revealed in Christ. The purpose for life is not available to man's wisdom apart from Christ. Do you see why Paul says, if you buy what the Gnostics are selling, you have to reject the knowledge of God to embrace their theories. And at that point, meaning, purpose, and the essence of life are gone. They're gone. Isaac Newton, you know who I'm talking about? He's believed to be one of the, the greatest scientific minds in history. He's, he's the guy that discovered the, the laws of, of motion and the, and the principles of optics. And he's the one that took the prism and, and, and separated light into the various colors. He's the one who invented the infinitesimal calculus system that all of you love taking in college. 
He's the one that demonstrated how the laws of planetary motion account for our tides and for the precision of the equinoxes. He's the one who built the first reflecting telescope. He's the one who calculated the speed of light. He's the one who, who was serving as professor of mathematics at Cambridge. He's the one who is really the first scientist buried at Westminster Abbey. You know who I'm talking about? Isaac Newton. Newton, as he was studying planetary motion, hired an artisan to build a model of the solar system that everyone then could, could, could see just to demonstrate planetary travel. And they went to great lengths to make sure that every planet, the model they built for every planet, was, was specifically proportional to the gilded ball that was representing the sun and that, that all of them were proportional in their distance from the sun and they all traveled in exactly the orbit around the sun that he had observed. And so when he got this artisan to build this model, he had a crank on the side. And when you cranked the model, these, these planets then with precise choreographed movement went around the sun. And one of his friends, uh, he was a skeptic, came to visit him and was very intrigued by this, was very impressed. And so he asked, you know, how long did it take you to figure this out? How long did that take you? And who is it that built this for you? And Newton, without even a hint of a smile, not even a hint of a smile, said, well, no one built it. And his friend said, well, what do you mean? You, you must not have understood my question. I mean, somebody had to have crafted this splendid device, this work of art, this, this genius model of the solar system. And Newton said, no. No, no one actually did. It just kind of came together under its own power. And his friend said, well, you, you must think me to be a fool. I mean, something this magnificent can't just come together on its own. And Newton said, well, this model, it's just a very modest imitation of a much grander system that you refuse to believe is the work of a divine craftsman. And so by what reason do you arrive at such a foolish conclusion? His friend had no answer. He had no response. Why? Because all men are without excuse. The psalmist said the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Romans 1, since the creation of the world, the Lord has made it obvious to all men Everywhere they see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. So all men are without excuse. So we know there is a God. How can we know him? We can know of him. I mean, we know he is holy, don't we? Because if there was any flaw in his character, he would not be eternal. And if he's not eternal, then therefore he could not be the source of creation. So we know he is there through what we can observe, what he has revealed to us in his creation. But how? How can we know him? The knowledge of this mystery is revealed in Christ. The word became flesh. The word 
the word. But that's how we make ourselves known, right? That's how we communicate who we are. The word became flesh, full of grace and truth. The invisible image of the invisible God from eternity past, supreme over all creation. That's why Christ said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, well, you, you, you kind of keep repeating this point. Yes, because Paul keeps repeating this point. It's over and over and over. Why? Because those dwelling in spiritual darkness are coming upon the church there. And they're claiming that Christ is not divine. Therefore, he lacks sufficiency to redeem us. It's the evil demiurge who created the world. And so to get to the God, you've got to go through all these emanations. And we've got the secret knowledge as to how that is done. We've got this higher knowledge that you don't have. Paul knew this was absolute nonsense. Nonsense. Don't listen to them. The mystery of God is revealed in Christ. In him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. And I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now the word for plausible arguments here. Pythologia means they, they come with enticing words. These guys are smooth talkers and they've got degrees. Oh man, have they got degrees. But behind them is the one who dates all the way back to the garden. You know, the one who convinced man and woman in the beginning to reject truth and to embrace what really sounded good. I mean, why don't you be in charge of your own life, Right? Look at that tree. It's beautiful. There's nothing wrong with that tree. Look at the fruit on it. It's very healthy. It's got to be good for you. Why don't you eat from it and be free? You're not going to die. You're not going to believe that lie, are you? Don't you let anybody tell you whether you're a boy or a girl. I don't care what chromosomes you're born with. Don't you let anybody tell you what the real definition of marriage is. Listen to me. At the heart of every argument, whether it's coming from religious cults or secularists, on the surface, the humanistic appeal always sounds plausible. But it leads to, the word here for delude means to deceive. To compromise. You take the truth and you compromise it with anything. And it is no longer the truth. How are you going to worship a holy God according to lies? Well, you can't. You can't. Therefore, enticing words will lead you to death. They will lead you to death. Because you bought the lie that was being sold in the garden. And it's been the case with fallen men ever since. Now though I am absent in body, Paul says, yet I am with you in spirit. Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. That word for order there, taxon, is often translated discipline. It's the word used for soldiers standing at attention in a straight line. So this is not a problem church. It's not. It's a good church. It's an obedient church. It's a discipled church. 
that's, dis, that's been well-disciplined and faithful. And so Paul rejoices in all of that. That's why in the first five verses here of chapter 2, you don't see a single command. Not a single command. Paul struggles in his concern for the stability of their convictions. That's true. That they continue to trust in the sufficiency of Christ. That's true. Rather than being seduced by foolish controversies, that's true. And the word from Epaphras regarding the, the firmness of their faith brings great joy to Paul. That's true. And that's why he hasn't given them a single command. Not one command. But look at verse 6. Therefore. Whenever you see therefore, you need to know what it's there for. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The strength of their commitment to Christ, whom they received, that's past tense. In him rooted and built up, that's past tense. Established, that's past tense, according to what they've been taught. So what are the commands? What's in the present tense here? Walk in him. Abounding in thanksgiving. If you look in your Bibles down to verse 8, he commands them to rebel against silly philosophies, empty deceit, human traditions. And the way to do that is verses 6 and 7. You've got to remain rooted, built up, and established in truth. Now, the word tradition, verse 8, means to hand down. Some of you who are scholars of the scriptures are going to say, well, wait a minute, in 2 Thessalonians 2, didn't Paul say stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us? Yes, he did. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So are traditions good or are they bad? Do we hold to them or do we reject them? Which, which is it? Well, it depends. It depends. If a tradition started with the truth given by the Lord, you better hang on to it. But if we neglect the word of God to teach our own traditions, like Christ said of Israel in his day, he said that will be of no benefit to you. Hmm. So whether traditions are good or bad depends on where they come from. If the tradition comes from man, you better not be dogmatic. We have lots of folks coming from lots of different denominational backgrounds, and there are certain traditions of men they actually believe are from the scripture. They're not. And if you know your church history, you can see those are traditions. They're not necessarily bad. They are not scriptural, though. Better not be dogmatic about it. If it is something that comes from the Lord, you better not change it. Now, the Lord has given us the mental intellect to improve certain things about our life. We have seen over the past hundred years enormous improvement in the, in the medical field, medical science. Wonderful improvement. We've seen improvement in transportation. We're no longer flying on the Hindenburg, are we? 
We've seen improvement through inventions like the light bulb or refrigerators or telephones. But you know what we've never improved upon? We have never improved upon Genesis. Never. We've never improved upon the redemption of our souls the Lord provides through the incarnate Christ that he told us about in Genesis and then he unfolded for us in the rest of Scripture. And that's the reason that you can ask any man, what kind of woman would you like to have? And I don't care whether he's 20th century B.C. or 1st century A.D. or 21st century A.D. Unless he's become totally perverted, you know what that man's going to say? I want the woman of Proverbs 31 to be the mother of my children. That's what I want. Now, will every man say that? No, not every man will say that. Why? Because many men are perverted, very perverted in their sin. And so they have absolutely no idea how good the Lord's holy purposes are for his creation. Would you ask any woman, what kind of husband would you like, ma'am? What's she going to say? Give me one who will love me like Christ loves the church. Like Christ loves the church? Yes, because you can't improve upon that. You cannot improve upon that. The Lord created us male and female, and together in marriage we become one flesh, and he is to love her as Christ loves the church. Sacrificially, according to truth. So what kind of friend would you like? I'll tell you what kind of friend I'd like. I'd like one that is filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. In other words, give me a friend who is filled with the Holy Spirit and I'll have the best friend on earth. Verse 7 tells us why. Having been, past tense, rooted and built up in Christ, past tense, established in the faith, Past tense. As we've been taught, past tense. Walk in him. Abounding with thanksgiving. As we've received Christ. And we walk in him. He gives our life purpose and meaning and substance. And for that we are very, very very thankful, aren't you? If you have any questions, go to the connect table. Somebody will be there to help you. You can see any one of our elders or actually, um, as Spurgeon used to say, you can meet with me in my office. And people do that every week. I love it. I absolutely love it.